We are in week two of our series. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to miss her. We're going to miss her. We're going <laughs> to… Oh, man. Uh, so, uh, we are in week two of our series called Undo, and essentially what we're doing is we're looking at the teachings of Jesus and what He said about the church, and then we're looking at where we're at in the year 2019, in the year of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the modern American church, we're saying, like, where are we at? Is there anything we need to undo or possibly redo? So, we've been talking about a lot of stuff. Last week, um, we, we, talked, we, we began the series and we talked about um, how when most people think of Christianity uh, or, or the reason that they don't want to have anything to do with Christianity is not usually because of like the teachings of Jesus. It usually has something to do with us or the institution of the church, some way they've been treated, some way, something like that. And most of the time when people think about religion, uh, what they're thinking of is basically what we call the temple model. And the temple model is not just like something that we see with the, with the Jewish people, it's like what we see throughout history and even some modern uh, kind of religions as well. In the temple model, there's four components to it. I believe we should have a slide for this. Uh, the temple model had sacred places, you know, some sort of place you went and like, you know, special holy sort of place. You had sacred text, some sort of book, some sort of, you know, papyrus. And sometimes we're not. Uh, the sacred men who interpret the sacred text, and it's always usually men, and then they tell everybody what to think and believe, and that is the sincere followers. So, uh, when Jesus steps into the scene, uh, when he shows up and begins his ministry, his arrival signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. And he predicted this new movement uh, and, and that it would be something that wasn't just a rehashed or warmed over temple model, but it was something entirely new. And he said, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, right? He said, I will build my congregation, my community, my assembly, and these people, and, and the world will know my people, my ecclesia, because of how well they love others. So that was kind of the discussion last week. So this week we're going to move on and we're going to look at like um, if Jesus was trying to move us and set us free from this temple model, move them away from the temple model, move us away from the temple model and set us free from it, why does it seem like there's a whole lot of temple model present in our modern religion and Christianity? Like how did the past... How did the past make its way into our present, right? So that's what we want to talk about. So that's a great question. Let's start with this idea. Let's start with understanding the idea that uh, religion is a powerful thing. Religion and belief systems are a powerful thing. And with great power comes great… Very good. Yes, you're up to speed. With great power comes great responsibility. There's been a lot of good that's been done in the world because of Christianity and the church and religious beliefs. There's also been a whole lot of not so good done in the world in our history because of Christianity and religious beliefs. And the reason that religion, I believe, is so powerful is because religion affects what we believe and what we believe affects how we behave, right? So religion essentially affects how people behave. Um, the truth is, I think, we are all, in some degree, products of the environment that we were raised in, right? So much of what we believe and how we understand how we view the world is dictated by when we were born, where we were born, what kind of parents we had. When it comes to religion, especially, like what church you were raised in or, or closely associated with, what was passed down to you from the previous generation, that all affects how and what we believe. Uh, for example… Uh, I would, uh, I, you don't raise your hand, but do any of you believe in magical underwear? <laughs> like not, I'm not talking about like 
the underwear that you wear for your favorite sports team that you don't wash for the whole season because it's your lucky underwear. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like, like, like a divine pair of underwear. Uh, so that's one of the beliefs in Mormonism is that they have a set-aside specific set of white undergarments that they wear that protects them from like the evil presence of the world that we live in. But you didn't grow up Mormon, did you? So you probably don't buy into it. Or have you ever, have maybe you've, you've went to a friend's house and you've had some dinner and then you got done with dinner and you collected all the leftovers. Have you ever had the urge to pour the leftovers out on the ground and then roll over them with your body? No, that's not a thing you would be. Well, but there's some people that are in like uh, Southwest India that believe when you do that, it will actually help you to cure some skin disease. Have you ever had the urge, or maybe you've had a baby before in your life, have you ever had the urge to take that newborn baby and throw it off a five-story building to people catching it on a bed sheet? No? No, that's not a thing for you? Uh, well, if you grew up in a particular other place in India with another group of people, that might be common place for you, with the idea being that when you do this, it will bring good fortune uh, to your family and good health to the child. Now, we look at that and we go, man, that seems a bit weird, doesn't it? Like magic underwear, rolling over leftovers, dropping babies from like high places. It seems a bit weird, but it's not weird to those people who participate in that activity based on their religious beliefs. What seems weird to them, maybe, is a bunch of people getting dressed up, going to a building, worshiping a cross made out of wood, and then pretending to drink the flesh and blood of another human being. That seems weird, doesn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely that seems weird. The point is this, what we believe determines our behavior. And in most cases, most of what we believe is based on where and how we grew up and the beliefs and ideals that were handed down to us by the generation before us, when the, um, when it, which is when it, when it comes to the modern church in America, we have a particular understanding of how this thing should work. This is what church should be. This is how it functions. This is what we do. This is how we participate in the church. The truth is, what we understand as modern American Christianity is really just a version of Christianity. What do you mean by that? What do I mean by a version of Christianity? Well, I, I mean just this is that most of what we see in the modern American Christian church is really not that much different than the temple model that Jesus came to free us from. It's just that we've modified it and we've sprinkled a little bit of Jesus back into it. And I wonder and I question personally, like, how in line with what Jesus had in mind are we? This is difficult questions to ask, especially if, if you've grown up in the church and you understand church to be this one particular thing and this is the way it works. So stay with me, stay with me, stay with me, because hopefully we'll, we'll raise a few questions and maybe even get to an, an answer or something, I don't know. So we've talked about the temple model. We've talked about how the sig Jesus showing up signified the end of the temple model. The early church, right, and at the end of Jesus' ministry, his resurrection, he shows back up. He's telling people, here's what's going to happen. You get into the book of Acts. The early church sets off at Pentecost. The early church is off to a great start. It's doing some incredible things. People are coming from all over. They want to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ and what he's here to do to set us free and all wonderful stuff. 
But the first several hundred years of Christianity, um, even though they're off to a great start, it was all under like opposition. It was all under persecution. And there were moments within those first several hundred years that, you know, if you get into like Nero and uh, it's like the late 60s, Nero blamed all the Christians for the fire. And so there was this heavy persecution. You get into 70 AD, you get the destruction of the temple where they wiped everything and everybody out. Like, like something like a million Jews were killed in that. Like it's just great opposition. And yet the church, the, the gospel message continued to spread in the middle of that. Now, in the early 300s, 300 AD, you get the Christians and churches and Christianity, they catch a bit of a break. And this break is found under this guy by the name of Constantine. You may be familiar with him. You may remember the name. The story goes something like this. The Roman emperor Diocletian was in power. He decides to retire. There's two guys underneath him. You have Maxentius, Maxentius, something like that, and you have Constantine. Well, they go to battle to see who's going to become the next emperor. So in the year about 312 AD, there's a couple different versions of the story. These two are getting ready to fight to see who's going to come into power. And what happens just before Constantine goes into, ba into battle is he has a vision or a dream or something, depending on what source you're reading. And what he sees is... In the middle of the day, he sees this brilliant white cross made out of light, right, like in the middle of the day. So, and on this white light cross in the middle of the day, there's an inscription. And on the inscription, it says this. There's a Latin phrase, but it says this, in this sign conquer. In this sign conquer. So, he takes this as a sign. Obviously, God is on our side now. And Constantine instructs his army to inscribe crosses onto their shields. Paint them, scratch them, whatever it is you need to do. Put this emblem on the shield because God is on our side. So, they put the cross on the shields. They go into victory. They win the victory. They beat Maxentius. Constantine now becomes the emperor of Rome. He is now in power because apparently God is on his side. God gave him the strength and the might and the power to kill a bunch of other people so that he could have political power over the Roman Empire, right? So, as a result, of course, because God scratched Constantine's back, Constantine needed to scratch God's back, you got to pay it back, right? That's the way the system works, we think. And so, um, Constantine, he like takes the persecutions of Christianity away. He doesn't make it legal at this point, and that's like later, like late 300s. But what he does is he like stops persecuting and tormenting and, uh, uh, the Christians. So now Christianity is at least tolerated. It's now tolerated within the Roman Empire, right? Before this moment... The cross was never connected to Christianity before that moment. The cross before that moment was an execution device by the Romans. The cross was just a piece of wood that was used to torture and kill thieves and enemies of the state. Before this moment, the cross wasn't a Christian Thing. So, like, despite many people's commitment to the cross and what it is and what it represents, I understand that, I get it, it wasn't ever associated with Christianity, right? So, because of Constantine, um, Christianity is now tolerated. It's not fully accepted until 380 AD, and Christianity in that time becomes the, like, the official religion of, of the Roman Empire. So, this leads into, like, from the time he wins his battle all the way up to 380 AD when it's, like, the legal, uh, like, formal religion of, of the empire, you, it, it develops into what we know as the Holy Roman Empire. I don't know if we have that. But what you see in the Holy Roman Empire is that the Holy Roman Empire becomes, like, way more empire and 
and way more Roman than it ever does holy. And so Christianity begins ele is elevated through this time, right? From being persecuted outcasts to now, they, they were the, the persecuted minority. They move into this empowered majority in just a couple of decades. So now the Christians, the, the, the people part of the church are now big players in the realm of politics and power and money in the kingdom. Yeah, all of a sudden, we've got the power. They've got the power. Now, there's this other interesting thing that happens under the reign of Constantine. It's called the Arian Controversy. This has nothing to do with white people, by the way. It's like a different Arian thing. There's a guy by, there's a guy by the name of Arius that he had a particular way of understanding some scripture. Um, oh, another random thing, Constantine. Oh, I'm not getting into it. Arian controversy. Uh, the, so what happens is there was this big debate, this big heated debate about the divine nature of, who, of, of Jesus. And it was all really about around one word, but this whole thing sets off and people are upset with each other and all this stuff. And so um, Constantine assembles what's known as the Council of Nicaea. You may be familiar with, you may have heard this. They did a bunch of stuff at the Council of Nicaea. But essentially, they get together to debate, uh, is Jesus born divine or is he uh, given his divinity, is his divinity conferred upon him by God after his faithfulness to God? And so that's the big debate. And so Arius is like, no, no, his divinity was given to him after his faithfulness. Everybody else is like, no, no, he, he was born divine. He is the son of God, all this stuff. Which, by the way, this side won, which is why we believe that Jesus was born divine. It all affects what we believe. So anyways, they make, this, uh, they make this decision. No, we believe Jesus is born divine. Well, they don't shake hands and walk away peacefully and get on with life. It becomes this major issue. Like, people are not happy that this decision has been made. And so it erupts into this political debate, which then actually affects, like, financial stuff. And then it acts... And it just keeps getting further and further down the line until eventually you have, um, you, you have Constantine, the emperor, not the theologian, Constantine, the emperor, who steps into the middle of the thing. He says, we got to put this to rest. And so he issues this edict, okay? He issues this edict in the middle of this heated debate about the divine nature of Jesus. Watch what he says. Oh, this, by the way, um, is the effects that we are still feeling today. This is part of it. And I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius, the guy who was, you know, not on his side, and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. I mean, do you see what happens in this moment? Like what the emperor weighs in on a theological debate, and he says... If someone does not believe how we believe, they will be put to death. It's, isn't it interesting that the guy who saw the cross in the sky in this sign conquered, in this sign conquered, that gave him the power to take over the kingdom, is issuing the edict that says, if you disagree with me, you will die. If you disagree with what I believe about the Bible, you will die. So now you have all of a sudden any sort of theological division, any sort of disagreement about what the text or how you enter, is all of a sudden punishable by death. If you believe the wrong thing, you can die for it. Now, in this moment, in this time, Christianity isn't defined by how well do you follow the teachings of Jesus. It becomes defined by what do you believe. 
It's around this time in the 300s that all these creeds begin to get developed, right? And you may be familiar with all these different creeds that come out of this time because they're trying to put this stuff into place. What do we believe? Here's one. I want to look at one specifically, okay? This is the Apostles' Creed. You may be familiar with this, especially if you have a, a Catholic-type background. This is fairly familiar. But I want to look at this. I'm going to read this aloud and just kind of like pay attention to it in light of what we've talked about. He says, uh, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, most all this stuff is great stuff, right? You would say, yes, oh, yeah, I believe. I'm on board with that. I'm on board with that. But what is the underlying theme of this whole thing? What do you believe? I believe in God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe. Yes, I, I get it. But what's missing? What's missing is anything having to do with love. What's missing is anything having to do with, like, how do I express my faith? How do I put my faith in action? And so as a result, as all this is happening, people are being beaten, arrested, murdered, burned at the stake. Not because of how well they loved others, but for what they believed. They were persecuted for what they believed. Do you believe the right thing? Because if you don't check the boxes the way that we check the boxes, then it's heresy. And then you have all these situations where Christians can now persecute others. Because I can believe that creed all day long and then still live however I want without ever interfering with what I believe. It didn't matter what, how I lived, just as long as I checked. I can torture, persecute other Christians who don't believe the way that I believe because I have now been given authority by the church who has now been approved by the emperor who says, if you don't agree with me and our policies, you will die. Christianity becomes intertwined with the empire with the government of the day. Any, any, any problems we see with this? <clears throat> yeah. So the, the state gives power to the church, and the church leaders create a system and a structure, and there's levels of power, and there are these great buildings and chapels and cathedrals, and they're beautiful if you've ever been there. They're beautiful that are all erected in the name of God that has now been institutionalized. And these church leaders... They have their sacred text, and they have this canon called the Bible that was canonized somewhere around 360 A.D., and then these church leaders, they're the only ones that have access to the Scriptures, and they're the ones that interpret it, and they're the ones that tell the uneducated and the illiterate people what it meant, and so on and so forth. And before you know it, the ecclesia of Jesus has become the church of Christianity, where there is sacred places and sacred texts, and sacred men, always men, who interpret the text. They begin to tell people what they can and cannot do or else. They essentially create a whole new temple of the ver uh, version of the temple model. 
It's just that now we've got a little bit of this Jesus stuff sprinkled into it. The sacred mint had all kinds of power. Bishops and priests, they could keep somebody from getting baptized. They could withhold communion. They could excommunicate you. They had the power, and people were afraid of them. Yeah. Let's fast forward. Let's go to the 11th century. You have the beginning of what's known as the Crusades. There's this pope by the name of Pope Urban II, and Pope Urban II decided that we need to go take back the Holy Land, the Promised Land, from the Muslims. They were invading and taking over, and so we have to go set them free. And so the pope, what he did in all of his wisdom, he came up with this idea. He said, how do we get people to fight on behalf of God and, and, and taking back the land and, all this, and the church and the Holy Roman? He goes, I know what we should do. We promise men that they will be forgiven of their sins if they fight on our behalf, which obviously sounds like a great idea. Like, go fight and kill people for God, and when you do that, you'll be forgiven. Like, what could go wrong? Go sin in order to be forgiven of sin. And so all these men, they take up arms, and they flood to, the, to Europe, and they rape and pillage and murder their way all the way to the promised land under the banner of God is with us. And all our sins will be forgiven. Under the cross, we come forth. But then there's this other little problem that develops because now you have all these men who have just raped and pillaged and murdered their way across Europe, and they get into Israel. They've been given to kill anybody that's like standing in the way of the will of God, and all of a sudden you have Jewish people. Well, what did the Jewish people do? Well, the Jewish people, they killed Christ, so maybe we should just go ahead and take care of them while we're at it and do everybody a favor. So then they begin to execute the Jewish people as well. And it's all done under the will of God, the lens of the will. This is what God wants. Isn't it curious, just thinking out loud, that seven centuries after Constantine received a vision in the sky that said, in this sign conquer, The cross is still being used to advance the plans of men. The cross became connected to Christianity through violence and war. The church used the cross to justify violence and war. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that disturbing? Yes. Last week, we talked about the temple model and how the temple model gives extraordinary power to the sacred men who are interpreting the text and talking to the sincere followers. I would say it's an extraordinary amount of power for somebody to tell thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, if you go and kill in the name of God, you will be forgiven. That sounds like an awful lot of power. And I do emphasize the word awful. I mean, isn't that, isn't this just the temple model all over again? It's the very same thing that Jesus came to set us free from. And yet here we are bringing the temple model over and over again. Now, let's fast forward a little bit further into like 1517 and this little thing called the Reformation. You may have heard of it. 
1517. You get into the Reformation. Uh, there's this wonderful guy by the name of Martin Luther. He kind of looked around and was like, hey, I think we're missing some marks here. And uh, he kind of stood up to like fight back, to push back against like the Catholic Church. And, and so, of course, anybody that, uh, anybody that resists or pushes back on anything, the people in power are going to be upset. And they're going to think of you as like this protester, right? Which is where we get the name, the, 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 the Protestant Reformation. You're protesting and you're looking for this. Martin Luther didn't want to end the church. He just wanted to like bring some change. We have to do things a little bit differently. He was looking at like this idea of selling indulgences with the Catholic Church that we don't really do that, but actually other people have disagree, they disagree and whatever. So he's just looking at everything. He's like, man, we need to, 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 to fix some things here. And so because he stands up against the church, he gets excommunicated from the church, which seems like a big deal if you believe the Pope has the power to excommunicate you, which is, uh, you know, like if not, then does it really matter? Like most of the time, the systems that have power of us only have as much power as we're willing to give to them. You know what I'm saying? So the Pope is like, excommunicate you. Okay. I didn't believe you had that power anyway, so it doesn't, but anyway, so that's a different thing. So um, around this time, uh, Martin Luther's doing this thing, the Protestants of the Reformation is, is, is kind of underway. They develop what's known as these like solas, the, the, the five pillars of the Protestant Reformation. These may sound familiar, but they're called the five solas, and it's like, again, we're putting into place what we believe, right? I get it. I understand the importance of that. I'm not denying we, we have to have that thing. But So here's the five pillars, of, uh, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. There's sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. To which you would say, yes, those are fantastic. I'm on board with that. To which I would say, yes, you are because you're Protestant. That's why you're on board with that. That's how it's so. Uh, all this is great stuff. We're, we're yes, great job, Martin Luther. Great job, guys of the Reformation. We support that. I understand that. Thank you, Jesus. But this first one here, the sola scriptura, uh, the scripture alone, sola scriptura. It's fantastic. And and the basic idea is this: uh, we want to take our guidance and our direction from the Bible. Yeah, we get that. We're on board with that. We want to hear from like the Word of God, not like just what the man that talks on behalf of God that thinks he knows what he's saying is right. We want to go to the Word of God so, so we get our guidance from Scripture, absolutely. But Martin Luther also says this thing in regard to the power of Scripture that uh, it comes across interesting. It's like this positive first step, but then it kind of gets uh, maybe twisted a little bit. So Martin Luther says this about the authority of Scripture, which is a great statement. He says, a simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. To which you say, yeah, absolutely. I, man, that's, that's a good job, Martin Luther. I'm on your side. Cool, awesome. But there's this one word in here um, that, that kind of stands out. Do you see that word there? Armed. A simple layman armed with the Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Armed. 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 You're like, okay, yeah, I understand. I get it. This this phrase actually ends up leading to a lot of unintended consequences because what happens is you have the reform leaders, the Protestant leaders, they take this idea and they run with it and they use this kind of like approval, if you will, from Martin Luther as a way to weaponize the Bible. Okay, in the hands of the Protestants and the Reformation leaders, the Scripture now becomes the way that people fight against one another about what it is that they believe what the Scripture says. They fight, they fight, they fight. The sword of the Bible, right? 
becomes this big thing. And, and, and the result is not peace and unity and love. The result is division. And so from that moment, this Protestant Reformation began to split and split and split and split. And you went from one group of people working to like make some reforms in the church to if you look at it today, we have something like over a thousand different denominations in the Protestant movement alone. A thousand different denominations today. And do you know what the heart, it's at the heart of all of this? It wasn't how do we love people It was and still is all about how do you interpret the Scripture. It's all about, like during the time of Constantine, what do you believe? Because if you do not believe the way that I believe, then you are not welcomed. Then you are not a thousand different denominations. And now we have more sacred places and more sacred texts. How many versions of the Bible are there currently? Have you ever looked on like Bible Gateway to see the long list of Bibles? And now we have more sacred men who are telling the sincere followers what to believe more than ever before. And usually what they're telling people to believe is basically what they believe about what will get you into heaven and what will keep you out of hell. So Protestants have been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since because we've been armed with the gospel. You see, the real tragedy in all this is that we have now become the very thing that Jesus came to set us free from. We have become the temple model. We've become the temple model with like sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in so that we're not totally off the mark. And because we've done this, because we're like this version of what Jesus had in mind for us, love lost. Love lost. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, what was our passage from last week? John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus is starting this new movement. And what does he say? A new command I give to you. And something entirely new, something brand new, something you've never seen before, something not the temple version, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A new command I give you, they will know you are my disciples by your love. Love will replace the law. How are followers of a Jesus identified? It is no longer sacred places. It is no longer sacred text. It is no longer sacred men. They will be identified by their love. I love when people say things. Maybe, maybe you've said this. Maybe you've heard people say this. You've been around the church a bit. <clears throat> people say things like, I wish we could just go back. I wish we could just go back to the early church. Let's be a first century Jesus-following church. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. I'm for it. Let's make this thing as simple and straightforward as possible. The only problem is, is that when people say that, I don't think they understand what they're saying. Because here's why. Because in order for us to do that, you'd actually have to give up a lot about what you believe and who you are currently and what you think about God and the church and how things function. But if you're ready to do that, sure, let's go for it. Because what you have to realize, again, from the death of Jesus till somebody like Constantine comes along, the cross was not a part of the church. 
You also have to realize the first canonized version of the Bible wasn't until like 170 AD, and even that, you wouldn't consider it to be a Bible. It wasn't until like 360 AD that you have a canonized version of the Bible. And even with that, you still aren't having like Hebrews and John and Revelation in the Bible. So it wasn't really a complete version. And even with that, when you have the canonized version of the Bible in 360 AD, not everybody has it. Just a few people have it. We don't have the printing press. It's just scribes copying it, copying it, copying it, and then passing it around, passing it around. So when you talk about what does it mean to be a Christian, if you were to take away the cross and the Bible from most modern Christianities, we would know what to do with ourselves. But the truth and the reality is the cross was not a symbol of Christianity until like 300 years after Jesus, and we didn't even have the New Testament until like 300 years after Jesus. So for the first two to 300 years of Christianity, they didn't have any of that. So if you really want to be like the early church, let's go back, let's go back, first century believers, absolutely sure. Toss out your Bible, get rid of your crosses, sell the building, give that to the poor, let's go to Jimmy's house and talk about Jesus. No? No? We want to keep the crosses and the Bibles and the churches? Okay. That helps me. It gives me a job. I should be the one most for the church, the temple model. Hmm. Hmm. A new command I give you. A new com- You see, this creates all kinds of interesting questions. Without the cross on the building, without the Bible in our hands, how will we call ourselves Christians? How would they have done it? If we don't have these things, how do people know who we are? How do people know what we're about? Well, according to Jesus, I mean, if that's, if you guys are cool with Jesus, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is why when, when, the, when the temple model uh, got mixed and intertwined with the Jesus movement, love lost. Because in the temple model, what you believe is the highest priority rather than like, how are you actually living this out? Are you starting to see how a lot of who we are as, a, as an American church stems back and back and back and back and back to an experience that a Roman emperor had in the fourth century when he was given this vision or he saw something in the sky, and it said, in this sign, conquer. And it's almost like everything else that has come after that has had that as its foundation. Everything that's come after that has been based on, in this sign, conquer. You will have the power. You will be in charge. You will make… Do you ever wonder why the vision wasn't like, or the inscription in the vision wasn't like, in this sign, love. Like, isn't it odd that in this sign, conquer worked to the, to the side of the guy who needed the power? Let's take this a step further. If this isn't, if you are uncomfortable enough already, let's get, get ready. Let's, let's take this a step further. <clears throat> If having these things, the Bibles, the crosses, the icons, the things that are essentially sacred places and sacred texts, and, if these are the things that let people know that we are Christians, or if these are the things that for us as Christians confirm our own faith and confirm our own identity, if those are what we are relying on, then have we really moved on from the temple model? And if we haven't really moved on from the temple model, <laughs> ready? 
are we really following Jesus who came to move us away from the temple model? Uh-oh. Seth, you're being a bit harsh, don't you think? We're, we're not that bad. We're just trying to do… Oh, we're talking about this because I love you, right? Because we want to sort through, because we want to do better, because we want to pursue more, more intently the teaching and the ministry and what Jesus had in mind. Okay, here's an exercise. Here's a few questions that may help think through, like, where, where you're at with all this and, and how you understand this, okay? Um, have you ever wondered how close you can get to sinning without sinning? Have you ever wondered how close you can get to sin without sinning? Okay, that's, that's temple thinking, right? Like, because you're, you're not pursuing necessarily how close can you get to God. You're pursuing, like, what's the line? What, how far can I get? That's… Uh, um, have you ever felt guiltier about missing church than you have about how you treated somebody at work? I can tell you right now, most of you don't feel guilty about missing church. <laughs> Hey, 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 take it easy, Seth. I'm just kidding. Uh, that's temple thinking. Have you ever been more concerned with correcting somebody's theology than you were with making sure that they knew that they were loved? That's temple thinking. Have you ever failed morally and you were more concerned about what you thought God would do to you than the relationship you had with the person you sinned with and how they were doing? That's temple model. Because in the temple model, our primary concern is ourselves, not the people around us, which is interesting again because what did Jesus say? You will love one another as I have loved you. Do you believe that there's a ritual that makes you right with God and removes the responsibility to make things right with the people you may have heard in your life? That's temple thinking. Do you ever look at people's moral failures or the sin in other people's life, and does it make you feel more superior? That's temple thinking. Because in the Jesus movement thinking, in the Jesus thinking, if you see the sin in somebody else's life, it should elicit some sort of compassion and love for them. Here's a good one. This is a tough one because I see what happens online. I see what people post. I see all this stuff. Do you have a particular political view that causes you to struggle to love people who oppose your particular views? That's temple thinking. And I see this all the time. I see Christians post these absurd posts about Christianity and politics, and they mingle them together, and then other Christians, and I'm like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Have an opinion. Sure, great. Think what you, sure, great. But like, it's all done with like this, like, there's like this venom in it, right? Like, how, that's temple thinking. What fuels the temple model thinking? What fuels it? <laughs> and here's, here's the truth of it, is the failure to embrace the entirety of the gospel message. The thing that fuels the temple model is our failure to embrace the entirety of the gospel message. 
right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't want you to be depressed. I want you to be excited and, and upbeat today because here's the thing is that we have the ability to change this. You have the ability to change this. We as a church have the ability to move the church in the year 2019 more in line with the teachings of Jesus. We, we can actually make a difference. Like what a beautiful, it's an awesome thing that we have the chance to be a part of. Here's, how we, here's what we have to do. It's one thing. It's really simple and really difficult at the exact same time. This is so simple, you're going to be like, that's it? All that, 35 minutes for that set, that's what you're giving us? Yeah, this is what I'm giving you. Here's the thing. Here, here's, you want to know how to fix this? You want to know how to move in the future? You want to know how to treat? Here, this is it. Let the love of Jesus be the filter of your life. Let the love of Jesus be the filter of your life. Let the love of Jesus, and a new command I give you, that if you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What if we actually allowed God's love for us and for those around us to inform our conscience and to shape our behavior? Imagine what that would look like if I let the love of Jesus be the filter for my life when it comes to like my marriage, when it comes to like my family. What would it look like at my job? What would it look like if I allowed the love of Jesus to inform my conscience, to inform my behavior, to be the filter of the entirety of my life? What would that look like when I'm at the Geneva parade and the wrong political party came walking by? Would they be met with, go home? Or would they be met with, hey man, I know we're not on the same page here, but I still believe that you were made in the image and likeness of God, and I will still love you as a human being because I believe that Jesus loved everyone. And the way that he loved everyone was whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him is that he still took time to be with you. And even when you were a mess, even when you were a prostitute, even when you were a leper, even when you were poor, even when you had nothing, he still came to be with you. How do we move beyond the temple model? We allow the love of Jesus to be the filter of our life. We allow love to win. We allow the love of Jesus to be the filter of our lives. And they will know you are Christians by the number of crosses you have. And they will know you are Christians by if you read the proper version of the Bible. And they will know you are Christians by how many Bible verses you have on your bumper. And they will know you are Christians by your love. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life.